For January 24th, 2022, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 708, The Meatlovian and the Steinmanian. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are uh, celebrating the things that we love by advancing, uh, not exactly far-fetched, but uh, uh, ornate, uh, baroque theories uh, about it. Um, I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my uh, my friends to whom I say, if it ain't baroque... Hey, it's Peter Fenzel. Pete, how are you doing? <laughs> well, you didn't even use my middle name, so I'm not Baroque at all. <laughs> it's, uh, well, you know. If hey, it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. That's what I'm oh, that's the end of the joke. There it is. And Mark <laughs> it Lee. Doesn't... <laughs> oh, yes, Mark Lee. Mark oh, Lee's yeah, here. sorry. And Mark, and Mark Lee. Ready to Rococo enroll. There it is. Oh. Like, nice. Nice. Excellent. Nice. I ever sigh what you did there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it probably doesn't. No, 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 not yet. We got to fill time. We got to fill time. Vamp, Matt. Vamp. Okay, got it. I'll, I'll do. I don't know. It's hard to. I, I sometimes try. I feel like I, I don't know. I leave a comment in the in the show notes if you want to hurt my feelings. I guess like about. Uh, I try. I try to put a. Um, I, I try to put like a little intro at the beginning of of what we say that kind of eases us into the topic. But I don't know if we should if we should just dive in and be like, this is the episode about you know family ties. No, and or, I think a certain directness would be appropriate to the subject. In the, right? in, yes, in this particular restraint. in this in this particular case, and like we've already sort of you know gone against that principle by by investigating the matter in this particular way, but. But, uh, you know, I've I've grown to actually like the, you know, the little beginning of Mark Maron's podcast where he just talks about whatever is on his mind for for a few minutes, because, I, you know, I, I, I do feel like um, uh, the the like the what are they called? Parasocial relationships, the, you know, kind of connections you make with people or what what keep you invested in in a podcast or at least keeps me invested in a lot of the podcasts that that I listen to. Anyway, we have great uh, affection for the singer of Power. About uh, the singer of power ballads. Wow, say that five times fast. Uh, Meatloaf, and uh, we have talked about Meatloaf a great deal uh, on uh, overthinking it in articles and in the TFT podcast. Um, and we were really sad that he died this past week. And you know, we wanted to um, uh, talk about uh, talk about um, our our love for meatloaf um and I, I it's probably not possible to do without getting a little bit into some of the the troubling things about his his um later years so you know i don't know let me just let me just toss it to you pete who can like tee this up for us because you said uh, you had come up with a grand unified theory of meatloaf is it breadcrumb <laughs> is it breadcrumb and eggs pete is it's it combining the... veal uh-huh. and beef and uh-huh. pork and oh got it Okay. Yeah, in equal measure. By the way, if you're not using meatloaf mix for your meatloaf, what are you even doing? I would do anything for meatloaf, but I won't do that. What is that fail to use meatloaf mix? What even is in meatloaf mix? I think it's veal, beef, and pork. Oh, okay. Uh, it's not like I, it's not like hamburger helper. It's not like the spices and and like oh. binders 
stuff. I thought, I thought you meant like, okay, I, pro- I provide the, the ground meat, but, um, but the, the all the spices and things come from, you know, b- uh, whatever, Sarah Lee or something like that. But the, the, no, the meatloaf mix is just the proper proportions of, yeah, of, uh, got it. Cause some of the, one of the things that people might not know about cooking meat, and again, I might have the meat mix wrong. I'll Google it while we're talking and I'll, and I'll come up with it and I'll report it to everybody later. But, um, one of the things that you might, benefit from learning about cooking meat, and you know this rather, I'm sure, and Mark, you probably know this too, is that certain cuts of meat, certain types of meat are leaner than others or fattier than others or more flavorful or less flavorful than others. And all of these qualities affect how they perform at, at various sorts of culinary, uh, various sorts of culinary um, applications. And one of the things you can do is if you have a meat that's too lean, you can add something fatty to it to make it perform as if it were a fattier meat, such as, you know, putting a little bit of pork into a, a lean meat mix to make a hamburger, right? Or like using bacon with a filet, right, is a combination that's pretty common. You know, there's like ways that you mix the different meats to sort of arrive at a uh, at a final a final uh, a final destination, sure. as, as it were. Sometimes you um, just you just drape. It's called barding, I think. You just drape call fat over, you know, yeah. a, a a lean roast, and it you know gives it gives it that yeah. thing. This is a it's a delicate procedure, Pete, though, because I've seen many a meatloaf. In fact, I've I've been, I know the three of us have been involved in at least one meatloaf that was a a meatloaf for the ages. Um, Oof. That, Ooh, that uh, was, yeah, but that where some of the fattier ingredients just d- dripped out into the pan, right? Yeah, and left and left some of the some of the actual experience of the meatloaf. Like if you listed the ingredients of the meatloaf, you you would think it was unctuous and and sinful, a sinful unctuous meatloaf. No, no, it but uh, but it, yeah, it got it and it, it ended up uh, you know no no shade, but it ended up uh, ended up a little dry. So you really need to make sure. When you're making a force meat, right? Uh, you need to make sure that um, the 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 meat the and the you know the fat and the non-fat portions kind of stay in an emulsion during the whole you know during the whole cooking process and eating process as well. Yeah, ground beef, pork, and veal. Mm. Sounds By good. By the way, this, this what's your target you fat? What's your what? target? What's your target fat percentage, Pete? Oh, I don't go that deep on it. I mean, when we do the store-bought meatloaf mix, I think we're pretty comfortable with that. Um, oh, got it. So they yeah. they set all that up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. speaking of really passionate singers, yeah. Uh, I was Pete, just saying, if you go through everything we just said, it's actually kind of a shot for shot remake of all of Meatloaf's life. Just, <laughs> <laughs> so you said something right, which was the difficulties of Meatloaf's later years. I would uh, change that to say the difficulties of Meatloaf's most of years. Uh, uh, Meatloaf had a kind of tough run of it, and not in the kind of way that you often think of when you think of a sing a singer who has a kind of tragic and self-destructive tendency right like uh there's often a little bit more romance to it a little bit more uh puccini uh but meatloaf was really less of a puccini and and more of a porcini um but which i say with with all love and, and joy but okay so here's the thing right me when meatloaf died he died of covid he was a vocal anti-vaxxer who insisted that even if vaccinations were a good thing to do, uh, he would not be controlled. Uh, This, of course, caused him to suffer a premature and terrible death. 
uh, predictably, right? This is sort of the consequence of that kind of action. Uh, maybe not universally, but often enough for oneself and others that it's like, okay, at this point, you know, this is not news. Uh, this is, of course, kind of crappy because a lot of people love Meatloaf and on the occasion of his death would want to, you know, mourn him with some respect. But because he turned his death into this, you know, mockery, all that sort of happens when he died is mockery, right? Oh, I would do anything for love, but I won't get vaxxed. How many times have you seen it, right? If he knew how much he was going to get made fun of on his death, uh, he probably would have still done it, but said some angry things about it before he died. <laughs> oh, no. More ones. But no, but, but here, then, then again, I'm saying these things as if, I think we need to talk about character for a bit. And I, and I want to talk about character, personality, right? Uh, the the enduring people that you know people that continue and endure over years and all about artists because there's a lot of stuff out there about artists and and Meatloaf if nothing else is is an artist uh, in both in the good ways and the bad but in ways that are counterintuitive um, so so Meatloaf of course I mean Matt uh, Mark I'll ask Mark you know where Meatloaf got his nickname right where Meatloaf comes from. Um, I believe it was what, like uh, high school wrestling or something? It's high, school, football. high school sports? Yeah. 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 It's football. It's from football. He was a football player. He's big, big and heavy. Uh, and, uh, and and he had his name, his given name was Mark Lee uh, Aday. Uh, and he was known as ML. But then when he gained a lot of weight, his coach started calling him Meatloaf. And that's kind of what stuck. Um, Meatloaf has suffered, according to his own account, somewhere between 18 and 20 concussions in his life. Now, you might say, oh, when we were preparing for the show, Matt, you might say, oh, is this going to be like a really difficult or is this going to make him seem embarrassed, right? Is this going to reflect on him being making poor choices? I mean, not really. It's it's mostly that he's a fo- he was a football player and, and he was an athlete and he was around athletes and he got a bad car crash and he had a bunch of accidents. He did a bunch of stage shows for a long time. Um, uh, he, he was hit in the head by a full-on shot put. In, I believe it was, you know, like as in thrown from a shot put thrower when he was in high school, which for a bunch of people would kill them uh, or at least really badly hurt them. Those things are, are of a serious amount of momentum going on. Um, and of course, now we have a lot more of an idea of what being hit in the head many times does to people than we did back when Meatloaf was in the process of continuously being hit in the head, uh, you know, sort of varsity blues style. And Speak, I say this, uh, speaking of which, congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams on their last minute victory uh, <laughs> tonight over the Bucks. It was uh, man, we were we were <laughs> we were on the edge of our seats for it. Oh, anything that makes Tom Brady throw his Surface tablet is probably <laughs> worth doing. Uh, actually, that's not true. I'm sure there are all sorts of situations where it'd be very bad for Tom Brady to throw a Surface tablet, you know, like being at his kid's class or something. So don't do it then. But in this occasion, it seemed pretty funny. Uh, but yes, yes. So the point being that Meatloaf has a bunch of head injuries and and they precede him doing anything that made him famous. And I wonder, I speculate about what effect they had on him because we don't know. And, and just the notion of the effect it had on him. The idea that there is a him that is distinct from the him that experienced life through the visions of somebody who's had 20 serious head injuries. Right. Um, he said he had 18, uh, but 19 because he didn't go to the doctor for the 19th one. Just in 2019, he fell off. A, he fell through a stage and like broke his shoulder and his neck. Right. Like like this is a guy who got beat up a lot. And and again. 
you want to, I'm trying to wrestle with the idea of not framing it in a biopower sort of way with the notion of he was ill, right? Because it was his life. And I don't want to characterize his entire life as something that was illness. And I certainly want, don't want to talk about his music and its effect that it's had on me and other people as something that's an illness, something that society should prevent from happening. Uh, but that's something I think we wrestle with a lot with artists and with a lot of things that are not head injuries, more romantically and readily, most notably drug addiction. So you know, the tragic drug addict artist, right? Or 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 mood disorders uh, that come on just naturally or for other reasons, right? Like uh, people who have these great flights of euphoria and these great depths of despair, becoming great romantic poets and seeking self-medication. And the opium dens is a, is a very romantic with a capital R and lowercase r notion. Uh, well, here's a guy who did the same thing, but by hitting himself, well, getting hit in the head. And, and and I and I assume not assume I would I would posit that if this is the kind of thing that has an effect on a person through the course of his life, and I and I wonder right because when you're talking about frontal head injuries, you're talking about the part of your brain that inhibits the other parts of your brain, and when it's damaged, you have a lot of disinhibited behavior that happens or a lot of diff- which can manifest as either. Difficulty making decisions, kind of paralysis, depression. I mean, I don't mean paralysis in like the not being able to move sense, but like being depressed, like not being and having a lot of like ability to do things or be very violent or, you know, murder, suicide. People are often people who've been hit in the head a lot. Domestic violence has a correlation with people being hit in the head a lot. Um, A lot of the people who end up on death row have severe head injuries at one point or another in their life, particularly to the frontal area of their head, which inhibits their behavior. Now, it isn't usually the case, right? This is not like, oh, man, we need to make another daredevil. We should dump a bunch of toxic waste on a bunch of children, right? That, like, hitting somebody in the head (laughs) disinhibits their brain in such a way that they become a great, passionate balladeer, (laughs) you know? And, in fact, I would even venture to say Kurt Cobain may very well have had a better music career if he wasn't on drugs. I'm not the kind of – I don't know. I've been talking a lot, but I will pause and sort of float this out there to you guys. Maybe I'm being – maybe I'm, I'm sort of trying to stick to my own guns too much by claiming that. But when you think of the sort of self-destructive behaviors that that transform artists into these sort of Dionysian beings in the public consciousness, do you think they really made them better artists? Like like the drugs or the, or the, or the drinking or the mental illness? Um, do you think it actually helps them? Well, it it certainly helped with publicity. <laughs> I, I suppose in terms of no. Like, I mean, I, sorry. I, don't, I mean, that sounds ghoulish, actually, when I say yeah. that because because uh, Kurt Cobain died by suicide. But the the um, what what I mean is that in the media age, it it creates a narrative. You know, it create it, it's it like creates a type that people can that people can latch onto. I mean, I don't know. Did it help Coleridge? Uh, That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah I don't be, know. be a great artist because I I think you have to sort of, you know, the stuff when when there's an apparatus when there's a PR apparatus focused on you know lionizing those those self destructive tendencies in ways that are you know that that are familiar from the capital R romanticism but also sort of new because of the the kind of the technology and media environment that disseminates these messages like it 
it's difficult to it's difficult to kind of piece out all all of the parts yeah. but like w- would you know i don't know like just would it have been better if coleridge had stuck around longer and wrote some more poems you know yeah probably like it, it you know it, I, I wouldn't uh i don't know maybe they're maybe they're they wouldn't have been as good but i you know it, it's a gamble i take like i would love to to love to see them um that that uh it's not you know and it, it's definitely like if you've been around uh sort of addiction recovery circles you know at all it's uh it's her, the the real real the drum that they beat real loud is um no it's not the substance you know it's not the substance that made you great right like it's not the substance that that unleashed the greatness it's it's the substance that always you know is sort of inhibiting you in in some particular way by like uh by by kind of trapping you um in a you know in a cycle where your where your agency is sort of robbed uh from from you which is you know kind of an important thing for for creative people so that's you know but it's it's undoubtedly more complicated than that i mean that's said ad hoc to a particular situation where um you're trying to to get people not to take trucks but the the you know sentiment is worth considering i guess let me let me expand on matt's point and take it a little bit of a different direction because um I'd say by and large, when we talk about the music of Meatloaf and his most enduring legacy, we're also talking about the music of Jim Steinman, right? Uh, famously, like the, the songwriter um, who we collaborated with, who wrote all the songs on the Bad Out of Hell, um, who wrote uh, Bad of Hell 2, right? And most notably, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Um, no, no, that's, you know, I'm kind of intentionally downplaying uh, Meatloaf's notable film career and all the other stuff he did outside of Jim Steinman. But I think it's fair to say that Meatloaf would not be the huge star that he is um, without Jim Steinman's music. OK, so all that being said is that, like, you know, we, we can't just say that the music stands for itself. Um, right. That the, you know, uh, stellar composition and uh, the melodies and the harmonies and, you know, Meatloaf's you know, particular uh, powerful vocal delivery like all we can't just say that all that stands for itself i mean you could but it, it, but it doesn't because uh, meatloaf has become and meatloaf and others who become huge cultural phenomenon phenomena by definition of that they had to have something beyond just the art the piece of art that they leave behind they have to have the broader narrative constructed around them and in the case of meatloaf and, and his music not just the thing that you listen to but the man that you see and the experience that the whole thing creates. Right? I'm thinking in particular of, I don't know how popular like music videos were at the time, but the one for Paradise by the Dashboard Light is notable in that like it shows the extremely vigorous, energetic um, uh, concert footage of him performing it live. Um, and it's just like so sweaty, so full of energy and vitality that like, you know, all like, you know, the, the, the sum total package all has to work together. The music it's, itself, the visual, and that kind of broader narrative that we've been talking about here. Sweaty has come to mean something different for these kids today, hasn't it? That like yes. It, yes. it means sort of trying too hard, right? Or like uh, you know, and that's not that's not the kind of sweaty that 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 would mean it's you know, no. t- trying just 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 the perfect I mean, He is trying really hard. Does anyone try harder than Meatloaf tried? Is that a thing that happens? Fair enough. <laughs> I know. Let me sleep on it. 
No, but yeah, but you know, I know what you mean. He, but he, there is a there is he's doing it well. He's not doing it poorly. So I guess one person to compare him to would be like Wesley Willis, which I think. Mark, oh, okay, hot take. Guys, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. That's not, yeah, that's, I feel like it wasn't as big a part of his identity. Not even even close, not even close, but a similar sort of performance style. You're going to have to educate the folks on who Wesley Willis was in case. So Wesley uh, Willis was a, was a very neuro atypical gentleman who was a hip hop artist um, in the, uh, well, notably in the early 2000s, a schizophrenic. Um, and I believe somebody who also had a, a persistent callus even on his on his front of his head from all the times that he headbutted people, which was sort of his trademark. And he was a if he were doing it uh, without, I, Pete, you know, I, I was headbutted by Wesley Wallace. You were head, that's right. I knew somebody had 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 uh, linked to the apostolic tradition on this podcast. <laughs> well, he played he played a show. I'm surprised that you didn't see it. Oh no, you were living in New York at the time. He played a show in Boston. Uh, oh, during in like um, winter twenty two thousand two, and uh, I was so, still in college. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah so I, I was living in Boston at the time and I went to see it at, at like the Middle East or whatever. And, uh, yeah, got, got, uh, got headbutt. I, you know, I, and I was in a line of people, right? Like afterwards, like to, to headbutt. He's, he, he, and he announced it from the stage. Like, if you want to stay after the show, stay and we'll, we'll, uh, what did he say? I'll say well, tap heads and get real high or something like that. <laughs> like, that's, uh, you know, it was good. But this is another guy who very he had a violent upbringing and he has paranoid schizophrenia. So with Wesley Willis, he, and he, he would do these raps wherein if he weren't, if we didn't have this whole biology angle, you would say that it was de- deconstructivist or Dadaist in nature. It, right. And that it was sort of very stripped down, torn down MC DJ stuff. Uh, you know, Northwest Airlines, Northwest Airlines, Northwest Airlines. That's either the ravings of a paranoid schizophrenic or, uh, you know, a master's music, <laughs> musical theater. Yeah, project. exactly. <laughs> like right. Degree project. Uh, project. So this is my uh, thesis project. <laughs> I whooped Batman's ass. I whooped <laughs> Batman's ass. Batman was talking a lot of poop, a lot of poop, except he didn't say poop. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's the, and, and it's, so there's the argument with Wesley Wills was like, oh, people are kind of exoticizing him because of his illness and his sort of strange behavior. But there is also a powerful disinhibition that came with who he was. And that includes his physical being. And he's a, a large man who had a violent childhood and probably had head trauma in addition to all the other stuff that was going on in his life. And he has this like sort of vast sort of this sort of Dionysian approach to music as as, now, if he had been reciting words that had been written for him by somebody else, uh, well, first of all, he probably would have struggled. And second of all, you know, it it would have been very different. Um, And and again, I'm not saying that Meatloaf and Wesley Willis are similar with regards to the degree that their brain uh, was different than what it might have been had they not gone through what they went through, which is, of course, paradoxical and whatnot. But I'm saying that they they strike me as having similar sorts of axes of interpretation of what it is to be a singer on a stage and and how to express intense disinhibition and and, and even to the point of social disinhibition you know meatloaf is not going to be judged by how he looks 
to be forced to be shy, to be forced to be not sexual, to you know, to to be forced to wear an undershirt. He's not going to do any of those things. <laughs> and 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 there's something of that. It wouldn't it wouldn't have helped. Yeah. Well, and this this also is another this is another axis. Uh, I keep using the word axis vector. Uh, this is a different vector that is uh, not necessarily orthogonal, but not consistent and dependent with the Katniss Everdeen vector. Uh, I'm going to like map out these the sea urchin of vectors that happen around uh, coincidental parallels to human adolescence, right? Where like you know, oh, dystopian. Uh, fiction about a government that doesn't understand you and tries to shoehorn you into uh, a role that you don't want to have in society, man, is partly about society, but it's also partly about teenagers' relationships with their parents. Um, somebody struggling with substance abuse who can't control their feelings, right? Or somebody struggling with a like frontal lobe injury who can't control their feelings and is instead expressing this this, or somebody who can't control their feelings who seeks out self self medication to to control themselves to regulate themselves is is that's an adolescent experience too because your frontal lobe isn't developed yet right and so like all your intense feelings and nobody understands you and you can't you can't help but make bad decisions right the whole like uh you know nobody likes you when you're 23 or like you know it's no surprise to me i am my own worst enemy because every now and then you know it's like that the self-destructive teenage impulse the teenage dirtbag in all of us when you know when we were teenagers and hopefully we grew out of it a little bit uh, is something of a result of, you know, the brain state of being an adolescent. And it has similarities to being like a heavy drug user or somebody who <laughs> suffered head injuries. Right. Like it's not coincidence. I mean, well, it is a coincidence, but it's not yeah, like I mean, it's not nothing. It's interesting right? Pete, what you're saying, because the, the idea that we the idea is that in an average expectable developmental process, we would grow out of this. Right. Um, think, right? And we stop listening to Meatloaf and we think of him as being kind of juvenile, but you and I, nobody thinks that. <laughs> like, nobody looks back on Meatloaf and says he's anything other than an artist for adults. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, Pete, I would, I would think anything for, for frontal lobe, but I won't think that. <laughs> And, and again, I'm not trying to bash him because I love the music so much, but I also love it in that Dionysian state, in that sort of altered consciousness state, karaoke. You know, like all my friends that I would play meatloaf with and sing meatloaf with, and it meant so much to us. These were times when we were leaving behind, you know, the the structured and rigid life that we lived as adults and got to kind of revel, right? And that's also part yeah, of the human experience. I, and it, I also you know, think, Pete, it, it, to, to a certain extent, yeah, I – I, f- I feel like you have a unique perspective here because let, let's remember it's, it's one thing to say that, that like, uh, you know, when, uh, when Suzanne Collins wrote, um, wrote the, the Hunger Games trilogy, uh, she was really with Donald Sutherland all along and not with, with Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> because, you know, Suzanne, Suzanne Collins was an adult and of the, uh, of the Sutherland's party. <laughs> without without uh without knowing it but uh you you've gone further and and wrote a uh wrote a novella as i recall called docking jay about oh, yeah. about life inside <laughs> the the logistics and trucking yeah. industry of pan am the yeah. uh you know the jim the, simon the, wrote that musical when started <laughs> docking jay docking jay meatloaf is in one of the great trucking movies of all time which is of course black dog starring kevin kevin's uh, not kevin spacey patrick swayze different guy similar vowel cluster um but yeah, sorry I mean, yes. meatloaf is in one of the great teenage disinhibition movies of all time yes. the rocky horror picture show that's right that's right, starring, that's right. Starring which is Barry- almost as good as black dog <laughs> 
<laughs> Black Dog's not good. For a second there, I thought you were going to say Fight Club, but that's a different kind of disambition. Oh, he's in that too. That's right. That's right. Um, oh, but that, like, you know, yeah, it's it's interesting to say that we that we sort of grow up and and sort of grow out of it. I I, I definitely <laughs> look. Donald Sutherland had a society to run. Susan Collins isn't on Donald Sutherland's team. She's Donald Sutherland's neighbor who looks at him and is like, "What are you doing with yourself? You're hurting. (laughs) You're you're a mess. Your family's a mess. This is all terrible. Don't do this." (laughs) But she's not Katniss. Like that—that's the big thing about Mockingjay the book, right? Is like she's not from. She does not identify with the child. Her like big sort of statement from the author, as I remember it, is. We, girls like Katniss shouldn't have to exist because we as adults should not make the world like this. It is not like we need to, you know, throw away the constraints of society and rebel. It's like we are we're, we're he's not on Donald Sutherland's team, but she realizes that she's part of Pan Am because she's an adult. And Pan Am is the sum of what the adults do to everybody. Um, now, granted, of course, not every adult has the same amount of power in society, and that's obvious. But but sorry, I, I don't mean I don't mean to go too far off the loaf here, but uh, but I'm feeling disinhibited. Get back, <laughs> get back, get back on the loaf. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, the, the I have one more observation that in in this direction, and I think Mark bringing up Jim Steinman is is a really interesting is a really interesting thing. When we talked, we talked a lot about um, punk on the TFT podcast because it's a, you know, a big interest of Ryan's and it was actually just, a, we, we were sort of historically based and going through the, the years of the 20th century uh, from the Beatles forward, I guess, or the later 20th century. And, and punk was one of the movements that we were, that we were dealing with. And it always, you know, with, with a kind of discourse of disorder, what we found is you, you, kind of look at the history of these bands even like very you know bands with sort of very extreme behavior or you know very extreme stuff that happened at their shows or you know who advocated for all kinds of you know radical overthrow leftist overthrow of the, of the government of all governments of any uh, government you, you found that that what they had was a really great tour manager uh that that like the mm. the disorder always existed um, within the context of a containing order, which protected it somewhat and enabled it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that like, uh, uh, it's, it is, it is a related phenomenon to, to, I think Pete, what you said about like, uh, uh, what you said about, um, the, the dark Knight rises, I think, uh, which was like, wow, gosh, when, when Gotham, uh, became a, a lawless anarchy, um, really took a lot of people cooperating to pile the desks up that high so that the judge could sit up above, on top of it <laughs> and, and, you know, hold the kangaroo court. Um, that like, the, there was no, and there's really no account of like, okay, how did you like, man, were, were, were there, you know, managers? <laughs> were the guys working in shifts? Did they get a cigarette break every two hours? You know, what was the, what were the, the OSHA standards that they, you know, because it, w- it wouldn't really be possible to make that, um, to make that uh, a, a pile of desks without that. We, we used to say a related but distinct thing about people who don't um, – uh, about people who sort of claim to like be independent of the system uh, on on the TFT podcast. It's not really possible to be independent and really is only possible to kind of 
to have this, um, you know, uh, I want to say lawlessness or immaturity, but disinhibition is probably a more precise word from what you, you know, from what you described, Pete. It's really only possible to have it when it is when it is contained, when sort of trenches, when channels are, are, are dug for it so that it can be channeled into, you know, uh, some kind of cultural availability, whether it's like commercial availability is like music you can buy or concerts that you can go to or whatever, or, you know, cultural availability in, in terms of like rituals or, you know, shamanistic vision quests or, or, or what have you. Um, it, it needs a, uh, you know, it needs a, a containing structure. And I, I think that like we see a lot because it burns very brightly, you know, the, the flame of the, um, uh, the flame of the self-destructive thing happening in, in the middle or, or the dis, the disinhibited thing, um, happening in the middle, but we don't always see, uh, the kind of the moat that's built around it to kind of to enable it and to protect it, um, and to protect you from it, uh, to a certain, to a certain extent. And like, in, in a way, this was like getting, getting really great, like super well constructed operatic, uh, material that played to Meatloaf's strengths as a singer and a performer, the kind of the, the bombastic high emotionality that he was just great at um the you know the amazing set of pipes that that he he had on him like this is uh you know the creating this this massive edifice cre- creating um you know the the foil pouch to hold the meatloaf you know is not uh is no mean feat i think and that's like it it is something that is uh, I don't know, kind of obscured by the, by the, by the brilliance and the, the charisma and the, um, kind of undeniable attraction, uh, of the meatloaf that it, you know, yeah. it, 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 uh, it goes, it goes in an aluminum pan. It's true. You know, I never think about meatloaf practicing music, but he had to have. Right. Like he had to have practiced singing. He had to have practiced. He, he came out songs. of the musical theater tradition as well, right? Which is where, uh, he met up with Jim Steinman. Mm. So right, you know, like we, it's interesting. We talk about all this like disinhibition and like you know adolescent burning energy, as if it is like you know, and we there and we sort of connected it orthogonally to um, the rawness of the punk rock movement. Um, it, it like it is a still a useful kind of you know um, uh, avenue of discourse to go on, but it elides a lot of what was you know the the, the thoughtfulness. The constructiveness yeah, yeah. and the kind of formalities. I think it's a good word for it, for which like a lot of the music came from. Yeah. And you want to say that Meatloaf had no self-control, obviously. I, the, the main reason I wanted to bring that up is because, well, also, you know, when you get old, your frontal lobe starts to atrophy naturally. And also Meatloaf is not somebody that you should ever take medical advice from <laughs> like that. And then the reason should be obvious because he is not a doctor, but also because like he doesn't have, even through there's nothing in his whole arc of his career that suggests that he has a, uh, a an, ev- an evaluation of risk and restraint that is sort of ingrained and kind of self-disciplined enough to provide the boundaries for someone else. That's not what his art has ever been about. So if you think that the art is like the person, 
then which it, I mean, a lot of time it just isn't. But if you think the art is going to be like the person, then you should not take medical advice from meatloaf. Um, there are other people who are like that. <laughs> I think a lot of them. The, the defining, you know, one of the many defining images of the, that come when you think about the music of meatloaf is a ripped naked beast man on a motorcycle yeah. uh, who is you know, he's riding it out of hell. Yeah. He is, he is literally defying the forces of death uh, and eternal darkness um, mm-hmm. to go and do awesome things. Yeah. And yeah. like, well, yeah. that is that is very attractive to a lot of people. It is also a fantasy and not realistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's he came out of hell. That's for sure. In a lot of ways, you know, when his dad. Oh, tried yeah. To murder yeah. Him and all his, that. Yeah. His father was a raging alcoholic who uh, you're, you're saying like literally tried to murder him. Yeah. Like, yeah. After yeah. his mom died of cancer, his dad tried to stab him to death. He fled. He fled town and like lived by himself in a small apartment until his friends figured out where he was. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, that's yeah. He, a, he had a rough upbringing, man. Yeah. He had a rough upbringing. I mean, it, there's a lot of people who it's it's funny because it's like, man, there's a lot of musicians who had a lot of or, or a rough upbringing. It's like, ah, I figure a lot of Meatloaf's peers also had rough upbringings. Maybe not this rough. <laughs> Maybe not this rough. But uh, but yes, like I, I totally hear what you guys are saying, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. And and I also just want to give Meatloaf some credit for I'm sure having more structure in his life than his music videos have <laughs> in terms of him. Like, uh, but even even Michael Bay is another great example of this, right? And uh, Michael Bay, another Meatloaf collaborator, right? Who made at least one or two of his big great music videos. Uh, somebody who specializes in. Uh, a style of art that is characterized by bombastic chaos that requires a, a lot of meetings, you know, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of like planning and like, you know, the union labor. Yeah. <laughs> miniaturized, you know, silicon transistors <laughs> like that, that may, you, know, you can't you can't like paint a Michael Bay movie on the side of a cave, right? Like you, you need a, you need, you need a digital projector and then the digital projectors, you know, don't, don't spring fully formed out of the heads of, of teenage football players. This isn't like a remake of the Rocky Horror picture show or that would no doubt happen. Um, but, but yes, like, uh, yeah, like there's also what it makes me think the part of why I'm stalling here is because I don't want to say what I'm going to say, uh, which is going an improv tangent, if you don't mind for a quick second, um, is that all right? Matt? Excellent. I'll do, okay. I'll do clown after that. Great. Quick improv tangent. Uh, I tend to think of them. There being two big improv traditions that, uh, are big in the, in North America. Uh, and, uh, there are other ones obviously, but the two big ones, the contemporary improv traditions that have been big in North America for the past 30, 40 years, um, are the, these, the, uh, we call it like the, what the Johnstown tradition, and then you could call it the Del Close tradition, but you're really talking about something that comes out from Viola Spolin. Um, although her tradition, her sort of work is more broad, but the idea being that two styles of putting on an improv show is you have some sort of interlocutor who relates to the audience and sets the constraints for what's happening in the show. The theory being that you need a person to set the boundaries of the creativity so that the people within the creativity can be, you know, in their sort of creative state and not censor themselves and not, um, and not like limit themselves and pursue their impulses, right? The idea being that, well, if people just went on stage and just pursue their impulses. It would be gobbledygook. It wouldn't be good. Nobody would want to watch it. Um, so in the, and this is a Canadian style, uh, you know, you have the yeah, this interlocutor who in a lot of shows is framed as a referee. That's one of the reasons a lot of the shows are framed as sort of sports competitions is because the uh, the referee of the competition is in much like in pro wrestling is actually the person providing the structure 
for the improvisers. In a pro wrestling match, the referee is, when they're counting, is giving directions to the wrestlers for what they're going to do next, is giving them cues, right? They're sort of a, they're sort of a on-stage stage manager who's kind of keeping the show going and, and, and making sure that in their semi-free play, they have boundaries, right? Um, but then there's this other way of doing it where you, uh, you, or get, you develop the interrelationship of characters on stage based off of responding to the offers of like the other people without an interlocutor. And there's instead a very complicated uh, and often argued about uh, kind of array of techniques that you develop for kind of building the show from the way that the players are responding to each other without this kind of net. And, uh, and the different styles are often attributable to different tones of show but but one of the things that improv really ran into prior to COVID that probably would have uh, exploded bigger if COVID hadn't exploded and blown all its theaters up <laughs> would have been uh, that that there was really a sort of pathology in the social organization of these improv communities that people were having a lot of trouble dealing with, uh, which involved um, just a real lack of boundaries, you know, and, and people who who really kind of thrived off of and kind of. Uh, in, in kind of maladaptive ways off of low boundary environments. Um, and, and I think that this is something that it wasn't just characteristic of improv. I think there are a lot of artistic communities where you seek to tear down these boundaries because you know that self-censoring and self-criticism has a role in limiting your creativity. But then if there isn't any sort of boundary, there are these really negative social behaviors that creep in and not even creep in, just walk in the front door. Right. And it's really hard to say it's really hard to punish someone if rule number one is everything is OK. Right. Um, and, and so you need to figure out how to modulate boundaries in these kinds of environments. And I think that when you're looking at the music of Meatloaf, you're watching that kind of dialogue in real time, right? You're like, and it's not, and the, the oversimplified way is like Jim Steinman is the order and Meatloaf is the chaos, right? Um, although that's not quite exactly what's happening, but but that sort of is what it feels like sometimes. But anyway, Matt, do you want to diverge on clowning for a second or? Clown, uh, cl uh, the, 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 the two kinds of improv, the kinds <laughs> that's not funny and the kind that's funny only oh, by right, accident. Right. Mark, Mark uh, this is how our municipal government works, right? Some <laughs> municipal governments, there are no rules and everybody just does what they feel. Well, that, I mean, that, that is like, I mean, you're kind of right, actually. Pete. <laughs> you're more right than you know. <laughs> One of the things if it feels good. Do it, man. Turn on, tune in, drop in, drop out. Blue I, clues. I don't I, know. Well, yeah, the the really famous Blue clues old, is very structured, actually. The <laughs> old Simpsons episode where Bart becomes a like a self help guru, right? And it's mm -hmm. his his uh, his motto is what I do, what I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the, the like the uh, you know guru there who's there is like I do what I feel like, you know, and and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it endorses this and it, you know, of course, Springfield falls apart because it's a terrible principle to run a municipal government. Uh, yes, yes. There's certain, it's so tough to grow up, man. Well, when you're in 10th grade and you, you hear about this stuff, it's so awesome. And now you're an adult and it's like, no, someone has to actually keep things from falling apart. So the, the, um, yeah, it, the, uh, I'll, I'll answer this as I typically will with an anecdote from, from Stuart Lee, um, and which I'll expand on a little bit. He, he sort of describes going to see a, uh, in France, a reenactment of, or as they say in France, a reenactment 
of the uh the like the medieval french clowns the bouffants or right. uh you know whatever that, that would like um have a day like a carnival day every year where they would do their stuff in the they would do their like jester stuff in the town and that you know you'd go to the and i'm now quoting um or at least paraphrasing the the you'd go to the baker and outside the baker's you know bake shop they would make fun of the baker right and they, you'd go to the tailor and the or the barber or whatever and you'd you'd make fun of the barber and you'd go to the city hall and you'd make fun of the mayor and then then they would go to the church right and he sort of observed uh, this that unlike the other places at the church they took chalk and drew a circle on the ground and stepped into the circle and then did all of their, their, uh, terrible scatological and sexual mockery of the, of the clergy, uh, and, and of the <laughs> church. Right. But that like drawing the circle and sort of stepping into it was an important, an important step. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the way, um, the the way he described it, um, and I think he was paraphrasing. Mister Lee was paraphrasing uh, someone else. Was that like a- anything that happens in a stand up comedy stage happens in a set of quotation marks, right? The you can think of the like the, the proscenium of the stage or whatever the apparatus of the theater as like a set of quotation marks that 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 happens without it. And just in in very practical terms, I think that like successful creative organizations. Um, manage to switch back and forth between one of two modes right and the the first is is you know the sort of the brainstorming uh mode where material is being generated the point of the point of the brainstorming mode is to just generate as much material uh as you possibly can um in this mode, there are no bad ideas. There's no hierarchy. It's a really flat sort of social organization. Um, and you don't, you know, you sort of, you, you contribute by putting more, more things into the pot. Um, the other mode is the execution mode, right? And, uh, the, in the execution mode, um, it is rigidly hierarchical. Uh, and your goal is to cut away as much as possible so that only something that like serves a single, a sort of singular vision, uh, remains. And this, you know, this is sort of the, the antithesis. It, it requires a completely different, you know, set of social skills. It requires a completely different idea of what is good. Uh, and good, you know, successful creative organizations manage to switch back and forth. Right between these two modes at all levels, even like within, you know, I, I did not do, I, you know, I'm like, uh, a, a, you know, supplicant at the feet of the master of improv, uh, compared with Pete's experience. But, I, but I do know about these, like, that's part of the problem. And he said, and he says, I there have to take, room. I got to take five more years of classes at $400 <laughs> a week before I'm up to the knee level. <laughs> and I don't even want to think about what comes after that, guys. But the the um the you know what happens is your rock and roll dreams come through. That's what happens <laughs> when you really, 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 really need it the most. Even in the course of of like a you know of one of the like the framing the the show structure devices that take the place of the referee in this this um Viola Spolin uh, uh Del Close like uh, lineage of improv. Th- there this happens in that like there are things and they can be games. They can be you know a associ- word association. 
negotiations. They can be like all kinds of things that are just focused on generating material. And yeah. then, and then there are sections of the show that are, that are focused on, on execution. This yes. happens in a rehearsal process. It mm-hmm. happens in a writing process. It happens in an organizational strategy process, right? Like at every level, successful creative organizations manage to switch back and forth, um, between these two, between these two modes where one, we like contend with the universe of possibility and just like, you know, investigate our, our wishes and desires. Right. And, and then on the other hand, we pick something and focus on, on doing it with excellence, you know, and that, that like, that is a, a maybe a slightly more, um, that, that's maybe a slightly more, uh, uh, nuanced way of talking about like the, the dialectic between the, um, you know, Meatlovian and the, uh, Steinman-esque, um, the Steinmanian. And, uh, rather than like, okay, well, Meatloaf was the, Meatloaf was the id and the, and Jim Steinman was the super, super ego, right? Like Meatloaf was the, was the horses and, and Jim Steinman was the, the charioteer, right? Like Meatloaf was the, the, uh, the, the four, the four cylinders crashing and kicking and, and Steinman was the, the hand on the, on the throttle, uh, of the, of the motorcycle as it arced, <laughs> as it arced out of hell, right? Like it, it's more that, um, right. It's, it's less schematic than that. It's more that these things exist in a, in a kind of a dialectical relationship, uh, with one another. And there's no, there's sort of no end to it, right? Like mm-hmm. create creativity, like creatively successful organizations have to keep this up for a long time. And, and it's really, really, really hard, right? Mm-hmm. And like one of two things happens. One is the band breaks up, right? Um, or the other is that a great deal of ritual and scaffolding is put uh, around the process, right? Mm-hmm. So that you get, uh, you get Saturday Night Live or something like this, which has just an enormous amount of like, you know, of ritual around it. You know, Monday night is a particular thing. Wednesday night is a particular thing. The dress rehearsal is a particular thing, you know, that, that like mm-hmm. all, all of these, uh, all of these things aren't, you know, aren't just, um, you know, a sop to the demands of television production, they are actually the, the scaffolding that allows the, the, the thing to continue. There are other, I mean, you could do more like you could do less, um, you know, norm, norm, normal, no less basic, uh, examples, right? Like, um, Oh, I, you know, I don't know the, the, there are theater collectives that have been doing this sort of thing, um, for, for a long, long time and, and working in precisely this way, but they, there's, there's a great deal of ritual that gets, mm-hmm. uh, that gets put or put around it. Um, so what you're anyway, saying yeah. is that a creative organization needs to be able to go, I would do anything for love, anything that you would be dreaming of. I would do anything for love, but they have to be able to modulate and say, 
but I won't do that. <laughs> but they have what? to repeat it and they have to go, I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Right. right. And then they kind of like, there's an execution and they go through some rules and it's like, I would do anything for love. You know, anything you've been dreaming of, I would do anything for love. And you have this moment of, of kind of dying and exploration. And then, but I won't do that is the execution. And that's the PowerPoint. Yeah. So that's like, this is what we do. That's, All right. Interesting. It's also I mean, like, what, yeah. what I'm saying, Pete, is that, that if you, if you come, uh, into, you know, uh, if you come into, uh, the concert or the, the work like a bat out of hell, uh, you have to go back into hell. Uh, you mm. know, we could call it like bat out of hell two, uh, T O O and T W O. Yeah. Did they ever make bat out of hell three? Um, yes, it does certainly exist. I believe Jim Steinman is also involved in it, but oh, that's um, a shame. did not have the, um, yeah, and it, anything near close to the cultural impact. It turns okay, out so. that two out of three wouldn't have been bad. Hmm, there you go. <laughs> hey, b- before, we, before we close out this conversation, can we just like talk about our experiences of like, because Pete, you mentioned it before, right? Like a, a main connection a lot of people have to this music is singing it at karaoke. Yes. Right. Um, like the uh, and it ties into all these things that we talked about before, right? And kind of the explosion of exuberance, um, you know, the the ability to be, uh, you know, to to be uninhibited and escape from a highly structured and inhibited environment, um, like and and kind of trying to, and I think a lot about kind of like the journeys that music takes us on, um, in particular, like you know, the the best of a meatloaf songs where you know it has like you know, multiple distinct parts and things like that. And like a question for Pete and for Matt, like, do you find like, uh, do you have, do you have this experience where, um, like you time the introduction of the big meatloaf song? It's like a little bit later on in the evening when, when, uh, karaoke is expected to reach its fever pitch and like, you make sure you insert it there because oh, yeah, you can't, sure. you, you, you can't just, just you can't, people are still eating dinner. That's rude. <laughs> right, yeah. Because <laughs> you need to be in that altered state. I'm yes, not going to do Sean Paul. You, you already need to be in the, right. It, it can't. It can't. Um, it, it, that being the thing, it can't. It, that alone cannot take you to the altered state. Just the just the music within, itself. Within yeah, within karaoke, yeah, in the karaoke context at least. I mean, I feel like there that that in much the same way that the artist you know doesn't exist independently of the management of the artist, right? The karaoke song doesn't exist independently of the location of the karaoke night. Um, but yeah, no, I think you need to reach that place. That also might be one of the reasons why I feel like Meatloaf is one of the is one of the, the artists whose karaoke pickings I have most enjoyed with close friends. And when a total stranger sings it, it's like meh. And I think mm. partly it's because it tends to come out when everybody has gotten to this place together. You know, everybody has kind of been singing together yeah. for a while. Everybody's kind of getting ramped up. And then the meatloaf hits and it's like, yes. Right. <laughs> Whereas if you're hanging out and you're drinking a Diet Coke and you're like, man, should I get the shepherd's pie? It's so salty. And then somebody is like, you know, I'm Phil Rizzuto. Oh, there, there, there's the bitch. And it's just like, oh, my goodness. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> you're talking, of course, yeah. about um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which is like yes. if you get the uncut version of in karaoke is like a solid eight minutes. <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yes. And like, yeah, you're, you're friends really need to be um uh, you know uh ready to go on that journey with you yes we're all reminiscing of course objects in the rearview mirror are actually maybe closer than they appear but may appear closer than they are yes exactly the the warping effect of memory uh, i mean i don't know i have a meatloaf's 
karaoke recollection that's pretty intense. Matt, do you want to touch on this before I jump into that? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I was my uh, early meatloaf experiences were largely going to midnight screenings of the the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I started doing when I was thirteen. Um, and he was not the character that I identified uh, with most, but he definitely. Uh, you know, does a great, uh, does a great number in that, that particular thing, um, that I, you know, that I liked a lot. Anyway, the, the, uh, you know, the character, the character that I de- identified most was, of course, the Killjoy, who at the end has to send, uh, uh, Frankenfurter back to his, his planet because there, there is a galaxy to run after all. Um, what, what, Pete, tell us the story of, uh, your night, uh, your night with the loaf. <laughs> so I had a really good friend. Uh, his name was TC. And I think anybody who knows me from the old improv stomping grounds probably knows this guy, too. Well, maybe not the younger people. Um, TC was super nice, you know, a bit older than me, uh, mild mannered, I think an ac- a guy who worked in academia, but wasn't himself an academic. So professional, uh, you know, had a couple kids, was divorced, you know, very, very sweet, but hosted an annual uh uh, Valentine's Day show called Thorns, where he complained about how love was terrible, right? Um, even though at the time that I'm describing, he uh, he was with a woman who they love each other very much. She's moved on since um, and uh, and is doing great. But, you know, we all kind of remember these moments, these times. Uh, and he would see had a couple of go-to songs at karaoke, which he would just crush. And one of them was Batted a Hell by Meatloaf. And he would sing Meatloaf a lot. And it, and it was one of those things where, like, I had a friend who sang Springsteen a lot, and I was like, oh, I can't really sing Springsteen because, you know, this guy, you know, he always sings Springsteen and he has a kind of different approach to it than I do. And I don't want to be in dialogue with him. That's not why I would do it. So I'm not going to sing Springsteen that much. And like TC, like, is going to sing the meatloaf. And so be careful if you're going to sing the meatloaf because you don't want to you don't want to hit the meatloaf twice, uh, you know, at weird different points in the night. And you don't want to sing it if he's already put it in. Right. As it were. Um, a meatloaf, uh, meatloaf, TC, uh, sadly, tragically, uh uh, came down with pancreatic cancer and um he he was very very ill and he he lost weight rapidly and, and he was around for a while we had longer with him than we thought we were going to but he kept coming to karaoke you know and he kept singing um one of the other songs he really loved to sing was fairy tale of new york by the pogues to give you a kind of sense of uh his kind of musical taste he's very 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 musical guy even though he had these big passionate songs they liked um and and after he finally died uh, a bunch of us were in the bar next to our improv theater, um, and uh, and our sort of act of mourning was to it was like maybe six or seven of us. Um, we all took our phones out and we all put "Bad Out of Hell" on our phones, and we piled our phones in like a sort of bonfire in the middle of the table at this bar and like blasted a sort of like just out of sync cacophonous bat out of hell, like out of this pile of phones. And we just sort of sat there in silence, uh, kind of comp- contemplating uh, what had been lost. Um, yeah. Um, because, you know, there's an intensity of feeling that comes with the revelry of life. And, uh, and there are other intensities of feeling that come with uh, the loss of the end of life. And uh, some of them are fond remembrances and others, um, well, let's just say life is a lemon and I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, isn't, isn't that the thing, right? Like from, from the time when you're, uh, from the time when you're a young adult or adolescent, right. And the, the, the world is one giant yes. And, 
you know, mm-hmm. and you feel like the the worst thing in the world are all the the forces that are uh, the forces that are holding you back, you know, from all of your your infinite possibilities and and all the the you know flexibility and all of the um, uh, energy that you have mm-hmm. to uh, you know to a sli- to to a slightly older time uh, as you approach that final no, you know where the. <laughs> Uh, w- where you realize that the 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 tank is not as full, you know, <laughs> um, as you as as it once was, or when it uh, or or maybe it never really was, and and you just sort of felt it in in all of your uh, yeah. all of your all of your exuberance. But I, you know, I think one of the things that that meatloaf, um, what that what what it can do you know, is to put it, uh, to put it, to, to, to transport you back, you know, to sort of time travel, uh, back to, uh, to a moment where, you know, I don't know, more things were possible, even if they weren't, you believed they were. And that, um, you know, as we, uh, as we all, you know, board that, that motorcycle either out of hell or back into it, it's, it's worth staying in touch with that, uh, with that sensibility and with that, that thing that you must, uh, uh, that, that you must sort of continue to remember, you know, because, uh, it, 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 it keeps you alive and it, it touches, it connects you with vitality and with, um, you know, uh, with sort of possibility and with a, a great deal of joy. You took the words right out of my mouth, man. <laughs> well, you know what I said, uh, when we're going, when we started this podcast, I said, we're going to go all the way tonight. We're going to go <laughs> all the way tonight, tonight. <laughs> All right, uh, keeping the floor open. I hope open. our listeners aren't uh, praying for the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> so hurry up, and I believe it has arrived. After this episode, at least. Man, I'll tell you, living in New England these days, there are nights when the wind is so cold. <laughs> Sorry, that's Celine Dion. Milo <laughs> should have sang it. It's Jim Steinman. He did sing it eventually. Never mind. Matt, wrap it up. Wrap it up, Matt. Oh, pull up, God. pull up. God, there's, there's a whole other podcast that we could do about the relationship <laughs> between Meatloaf and Celine freaking Dion, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. But that's left as an exercise to the reader. Where? Uh, the, you can put that in the uh, you can put that in the comments in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, by the way, for listening. Thanks to Pete and Mark for having this conversation. Uh, we appreciate it, and it's always uh, you know it's always good to uh, uh, it's always good to to remember the ones who have uh, made a difference to us. So I'm glad we got a chance to do it. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. And like a sinner before. The gates of heaven all come crawling on, on back, back to you. you.